0: Listen to more episodes of this podcast earlier than everybody else, and add free when you sign up for Nebula, the creator-owned streaming service that's audience-supported, featuring more than 130 top-tier educational creators focusing on making content for you and not for an algorithm. Sign up for Nebula by clicking on the link in the description, or go to nebula.tv conversationswithjoe to support the podcast and get more eye-opening content. This video is supported by ExpressVPN. There's a town called West Texas. It's not in west texas it's just north of waco which is kind of more on the east side of texas but it's called west texas this is a real town this is not an abbott and costello routine it's a small town farming community and one day back in 2013 a guy named derek hurt and his daughter chloe were driving around and she noticed that a building was on fire He recognized it as a local fertilizer plant that made fertilizer for the farmers around there. And, uh, you know, the first responders had already been called. There were a dozen or so firefighters out there fighting the blaze and everything. So he didn't really have much to do, so he got out his phone and decided to record it. And what he recorded was this. Luckily, both of them escaped unharmed, but many others weren't so lucky. 15 people died, most of them first responders, and 200 people were injured in a blast that the U.S. Geological Survey measured as a 2.1 magnitude tremor. Where the plant once stood, there is now a 93-foot wide crater. The cause of the fire has never been fully understood. Some people suspected that it might have been uh, deliberately set. There's not really been any proof of that, but uh, whoever started it, however it got started, it eventually hit the 240 tons of ammonium nitrate that they had in storage. That, by the way, is what they used in the Oklahoma City bombing. Except they only had a truck full of it. The West explosion was insane, and one of the biggest warehouse explosions ever on record. Until last year. On August 4th of 2020, a fire broke out in Warehouse 12 in the port of Beirut. This warehouse was holding, and you can't make this up, folks, fireworks. And 2,750 tons of ammonium nitrate. There you can see the fireworks going off in the smoke cloud. And there you can see the ammonium nitrate. According to Wikipedia, this caused 207 deaths, 7,500 injuries, and caused $15 billion in damage. The explosion was equal to a 1.1 kiloton bomb and could be heard as far away as Cyprus. Companies often work with hazardous chemicals, and these are just a couple of extreme examples of what can happen when things go wrong with those chemicals. But neither of these disasters comes close to what happened in Bhopal, India in 1984. Not only did it kill far more people, but unlike these examples, it did it without making a sound. (music) To understand what happened in Bhopal, we have to first establish what was going on in the city at the time. Bhopal is the capital city of Madhya Pradesh, and its history goes back at least 300 years, maybe more than a thousand, if the legends of the founding are true. Interesting thing about Bhopal, for about a hundred years, it was ruled by a dynasty of women called the Begums. Uh, That's a title, not a name, by the way. Modern India is a constitutional republic, so that party's officially over, but the royal heirs basically live like Bollywood Kardashians. They're huge celebrities in India. But anyway, in the middle of the 20th century, Bhopal grew into an important industrial hub in India. It grew from about 100,000 people in 1950 to 2.4 million in 2021. But as it tends to happen, the economic growth didn't affect everybody equally. When you talk about what happened in Bhopal, it's as much a story about economic inequality as it is about corporate negligence. In 1984, the city was home to around 784,000 to a million people, depending on who you ask. Seriously, the numbers are all over the place. But about 20% of people there lived in what are called kucha homes. Uh, These are homes that are kind of made out of whatever scraps they can find to put them together with. They're usually temporary in nature. Shanty towns might be another name for this kind of neighborhood. And I use the present tense on that because people are still living like that today. Back in 84, most of these Kucha neighborhoods were concentrated in the northern industrial part of the city, whereas the wealthier people lived further south in what are called puka homes, which might be traditional homes like you and I might experience, or flats or apartments. And smack dab in the middle of those Kucha neighborhoods in the industrial north was one of the city's biggest employers. It was a chemical plant run by United Carbide India Limited, or UCIL. The plant was an important employment hub in the town. Over a thousand families made their living off of it, not to mention hundreds of businesses around it that sort of fed off of that ecosystem. When the plant was built in 1969, the world was going through a bit of a green revolution, especially in India. And what that means, at the time anyway, was lots of pesticides. Pesticides didn't always have the stigma that we apply to them today. Uh, once upon a time, they were a godsend. They made it possible for our developing nations to feed their people and get rid of food insecurity. So the Bhopal UCIO plant was, was a huge producer of these pesticides that were so important to them at the time. And the two brand names that they made specifically were called Seven and Termic. Both of these pesticides were produced with a chemical called methyl isocyanate, or MIC, and originally it was produced in a plant in West Virginia and shipped over to India, but to save costs, they decided to start producing it locally at the plant in Bhopal. So after getting special permission to manufacture poison gas from the city, they opened up the new MIC production facility in 1979. So to make methyl isocyanate, you need a couple of ingredients. One is phosgene, which was an actual chemical weapon that was used in World War I. And the other one is methylamine, which, if that sounds familiar at all, is because you probably heard it in Breaking Bad, because it's used to make crystal meth. So you need the phosgene and methylamine to make methyl isocyanate, and you need methyl isocyanate to make the two pesticides, Seven and Termic. By the way, if you're wondering what exactly these two pesticides were designed to kill, the answer is... pretty much everything. Old-school pesticides weren't picky. According to the Missouri Botanical Garden, Seven is toxic to, quote, a broad range of insects on certain fruits, berries, nuts, ornamental flowers, trees, shrubs, and on lawns. It's also toxic to bees, aquatic invertebrates, and, of course, humans. The other pesticide, termic, is is highly regulated, but a spoonful of it can kill a rhino. It's also used as a rat poison and, uh, trigger warning, but burglars have been known to use this to kill guard dogs when breaking into houses. Yikes. Now, it should be said, there's nothing inherently evil about these pesticides. Chances are you've eaten something that was grown with their help. But they are powerful chemicals that require special handling or else things can go wrong. And within a couple of years of producing their own MIC and Bhopal, things started to go wrong. On Christmas Day in 1981, a phosgene leak killed one worker and sent another one to the hospital. Less than a month later, a second leak sent 25 people to the hospital. Clearly there was something wrong at this plant. Part of the problem was just simple budget cuts. Union Carbide had a couple of other plants that made MIC, one was the one in West Virginia, another one was in France, and both of these had computer systems that were designed to stop leaks. The one in Bhopal was supposed to be a copy of the one from West Virginia, but it had eight million dollars slashed from its budget so they couldn't afford the computerization. This means that operators had to detect and respond to problems manually, and there were only eight shutdown devices when 24 were the standard. Now that said, some analysts have suggested that this was actually adequate to keep the plant from running into a problem except maybe one in every million years or something like that. If things were done correctly, as we are about to find out, that was not the case. There were three underground tanks for storing the plant's MIC, each with a 60 ton capacity. Two of the tanks were for top quality MIC, the third tank held runoff or waste product, and the operating instructions said that no more than half of each tank was to be filled. And all three tanks had refrigeration units to keep them cool. They all had safety valves to prevent explosions. Now, could they have had more redundancy in this system? Yes, they could have. But again, some analysts say that that was sufficient for the time. So what happened at Bhopal is very complicated. Corporate greed obviously plays a big hand in it. Race plays an issue. I'll let the commenters go to town on that one. But in the early 80s, India went into a famine. Uh, cross began to fail, farmers ran out of business, and the need for pesticide went down. So UCIL and the parent company Union Carbide, they did what companies do. They slashed costs, they they cut corners, they uh, got rid of production and staff. Many of the more skilled workers went off to find new jobs elsewhere, and basically the plant was being maintained by a skeleton crew. The problems began to pile up, but they didn't go unnoticed. In fact, Union Carbide sent some of their own inspectors after the 25 people went to the hospital after that leak, and they found 61 safety violations. 61 safety violations that constituted, in their words, a risk for a serious incident to occur. Union Carbide claimed to have an action plan in place, but this was not enough for Indian journalist Rajkumar Kazwani. he became become an outspoken critic of UCIL and wrote a series of scathing articles claiming corruption and incompetence at the plant and warning of an impending disaster. Referring to the open kucha houses that surrounded the plant, he described Bhopal as, quote, a city on the edge of a volcano. His passion for the story stemmed from the fact that the person that was killed in 1981 was a personal friend of his. Unfortunately, his passion for this went unheeded, and the plant continued to cut costs and, and fall behind on maintenance issues. For example, a refrigeration unit was deactivated in June 1984. In October, the scrubber was taken offline. The scrubber is basically a gas vent that was supposed to spray a neutralizing agent while the plant was operating. Now, for the record, neither the refrigeration unit nor the scrubber by themselves would have caused this accident to take place. In fact, there was a third failsafe, it was called a flare tower, that would actually burn off any chemicals that might have leaked. At least, there was one until November of 1984 when that got taken offline, supposedly to be repaired, and that repair kept getting delayed. So, let's review. You have a city with a massive population of low-income people living in shanty towns around a chemical plant that's producing an actual chemical weapon with 61 safety violations on their record, two deadly accidents that have already occurred, and three fail-safes that have now been taken offline. Never before has the stage been more set for a massive disaster to occur. And on December 2nd of 1984, that disaster finally struck. Sometime between 8 and 9 p.m. on the night of December 2nd, an order was given to flush the pipes that lead phosgene into the MIC tanks. And unbeknownst to the crew that night, a safety valve that prevented this water from spewing into the tank had been uninstalled, which allowed water to flow into the MIC tank. The name of this particular tank was tank number 610. And at the time, it had 42 tons of MIC in it. Now, you might remember that this was a 60-ton tank, and it was only supposed to be about half full, so it had 12 tons of extra MIC in it than it was supposed to have, and now water is flowing into it. Water that undergoes an exothermic reaction when it comes into contact with MIC, so now the pressure and temperature in this tank is rising. At 11 p.m., the pressure in Tank 610 is now 10 psi, just 30 minutes before it had been 2 psi. Around 11.30, workers report that they can smell a leak around the tank, plus they can see yellowish water coming out of a branch of the relief pipe. So to neutralize the leak, they activate a water curtain that sprays around the tank, and then uh, they go on a tea break. Yeah, that sounds bad, but in fairness, uh, some have reported that they were actually kind of reconvening to sort of discuss what to do next. And while they were discussing over this tea, the pressure in the tank continued to rise. By midnight, it was at 55 psi. Now, at some point, the temperature in the tank exceeded 300 degrees Celsius because the concrete around one of the tanks began to crack and buckle. I say at some point because uh, the temperature indicator on this tank had been offline and had been for a long time. The only reason that we know that it reached that kind of temperature was because of the effects that it had on the concrete. Okay, so now things are starting to get serious. A safety valve has popped and workers report hearing rumblings in the tank. Operators try to activate the scrubber, but it fails. We don't know exactly why, but it's thought that maybe the neutralizing agent had run out. Next, they tried to raise a water curtain, but the sprayers only went up 10 meters, whereas the vent hood that they needed to reach was 30 meters high. They tried to activate the refrigeration unit, but apparently the Freon had run out of that. Like, this, this, this sounds like a massive comedy of errors. Like, I, I imagine these guys running around in like in, in double speed like a Benny Hill sketch, with just one thing going wrong after another. But there's absolutely nothing funny. About what happened next. By 1 a.m. gas could be smelled in the slums around the plant. Uh, Now about 30 minutes prior the supervisor had run the alarm so some people had already fled the scene. But he only ran the alarm for a few minutes. Uh, Nobody really knows why he stopped it. Maybe he thought that they had gotten a handle on the situation? But they had not. Those who slept through the alarm, and I'm sure I would have been in this group, only were woken up because their eyes were burning and they had searing pains in their chest and a pervasive cough that only went away after their throats closed up, causing them to suffocate to death in their beds as the gas silently permeated their open homes. By 1.15, the police arrive on the scene to find the area in total chaos, people running around uncontrollably, coughing, choking to death on hands and knees in streets that are already littered with bodies. One of the first on the scene is police superintendent, Swaraz Puri, who suffered some burns to his eyes. He went to a nearby hospital and got treated and then came back to conduct crowd control. Sometime between 2 and 2.30 a.m., workers were finally able to reseat a safety valve and get the leak to stop. But at this point, 40 to 45,000 kilograms of MIC were floating in a cloud over the slums of Bhopal. Apparently the workers realized how much had escaped, so they turned on the alarm for good this time. And by three o'clock, army engineers arrived, trucking people to the hospital, hundreds at a time. By the time the sun came up, 12,000 people were being treated at nearby Hamidia Hospital. And by the next morning, it was 55,000 people. For perspective, Hamidia Hospital had 1,200 beds. Over the next few days, some 170,000 people were being treated in hospitals around Bhopal. And they weren't all just from the slums. The winds carried the MIC cloud from the north down to the south, eventually covering 20 square kilometers of Bhopal. Granted, the poorer sections of Bhopal suffered the most by far, but it eventually affected all walks of life. The sheer number of victims in this tragedy, uh, it reaches a point to where the numbers don't even mean anything anymore. You know, our brains can't even rationalize it. As the saying goes, one death is a tragedy, a thousand is a statistic. But these were real people, and each one of these deaths was an individual tragedy, and it left behind loved ones whose lives would never be the same. Also, much like our COVID experience, healthcare workers bore the brunt of the disaster when they came into contact with the poison on the skin and clothes of their patients. One nurse described the feeling of MIC exposure as, quote, it felt like somebody had filled up our bodies with red chilies. Like all massive disasters, the exact death toll is kind of hard to calculate. Union Carbide estimated that 3,800 people had died in the first few hours of exposure, and by the way, that doesn't include the countless number of animals and livestock. In fact, the area around the plant became a sudden wasteland as even trees and grass began to die. Now, a different estimate suggests that 8,000 people died in the first week, and that's based off the fact that 7,000 funeral shrouds were bought in Bhopal in the week following the accident, and at least 1,000 bodies were unclaimed. But workers who disposed of the bodies say that that number is way too low. One particular truck driver said that he would haul 120 bodies at a time five times a day to a disposal area, and there were eight truckers doing the same thing. And this went on for three to four days, so a little bit of math puts that number at around 14,000. Many of them buried in mass graves, five to six people at a time, some of them just thrown onto log pyres. These numbers are staggering, but for every person that died, there's a dozen or so people that suffered from exposure and had long-term effects from it. These effects include ocular, respiratory, reproductive, genetic, and neurobehavioral issues. A high infant mortality rate is reported among the women of Bhopal, and many children have been born with severe physical and mental impairments. Cancer and thyroid problems occur at elevated rates, and the problem isn't just the gas leak. Mercury, lead, nickel, chromium, and several organic toxins have been sampled in the groundwater nearby due to faulty storage at the plant. According to a 2019 study, pollutants are continuing to contaminate and get into the groundwater and move up the food chain. There are reportedly areas around this plant that to this day are still so contaminated that you'll lose consciousness after 10 minutes of standing there. Between the initial exposure and the long-term effects, it's estimated that over half a million people have been affected. By the tragedy at Bhopal. And 75% of the people who died of COVID-19 in the last year in Bhopal were former gas survivors. One of whom was a journalist I mentioned previously, Rajkumar Keswani. He was caught in the death cloud he tried to warn everybody about, and he survived and went on to have a distinguished career. He's considered something of a legend in Indian journalism, but he died of COVID-19 on May 21st of this year. In the aftermath of the Bhopal gas tragedy, the Union Carbide Company tried to claim that there was some kind of uh, sabotage on the plant, but this was thoroughly investigated and dismissed. Kind of hard to claim sabotage when you have like 20 safety measures disconnected, guys. There was also a lot of passing the buck at Union Carbide, claiming that it was all the fault of UCIL, even though they own a majority stake in the company. This is kind of amazing, though. The CEO of Union Carbide, Warren Anderson, he visited Bhopal four days after the accident, and his reception was beautiful. He was placed under house arrest. They arrested his ass. A CEO experiencing consequences for his actions? He posted bail in a matter of hours and then quickly escaped the country. And by the way, the person who drove him to the airport was that police superintendent Swaraj Puri I mentioned earlier. After fleeing the country, he was considered a fugitive from justice by the Indian government. He was, they attempted many extradition requests. Needless to say, he never returned to India. He retired from UCC in 1986 and never suffered any legal consequences for what happened. Uh, Before he died in 2014, though, he did say that he had a guilty conscience about it. He had many sleepless nights and said that he didn't feel comfortable smiling or laughing in public because he thought that people might think it was inappropriate. Almost makes you feel bad for the guy. I'm kidding. (laughs) F*** you, dude. The effort to hold somebody accountable for the Bhopal gas tragedy continues to this very day. In 2010, eight people were convicted of death by negligence, including the former plant manager. Each of them were given a two-year sentence and were forced to pay a small fine, but they got out on bail. The Union Carbide Corporation was ordered to pay $470 million to victims in 1989, but after all the people had filed their claims, it came out to like $800 per person. The Bhopal factory closed in 1986, and Union Carbide was bought out by Dow Chemical in 2001. And since that happened, of course, Dow Chemical has claimed no responsibility. Victims groups remain active in Bhopal today, still seeking justice 35 years later though most of the direct exposure victims are now gone, still hundreds of thousands of people are feeling the effects of the worst industrial accident of all time. Industrial accidents still occur today, of course, but one of the bigger problems that they had to deal with is computer hacking. You might remember the, the colonial pipeline got shut down by a ransomware attack just a few weeks ago. And while you may not be dealing with chemicals or explosives, you may fall victim to this yourself. So to protect yourself, I might recommend you check out today's sponsor, ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN hides your computer from the outside world by making you look like you're somewhere else by connecting you to a virtual private network. It's fast. It's super easy to install. I was able to do it with no problems at all, so if you have any competency whatsoever, it'll be a breeze. And it just it just works. It's just totally in the background. You just turn it on and keep doing your thing like normal. In fact, now that the world's opening up again, you might start seeing yourself doing some work in coffee shops and restaurants and stuff like that. This is a good reason to have it, because those are very open Wi-Fi networks. You don't want to leave yourself vulnerable. In fact, using ExpressVPN is even better than working like normal because it lets you do things that you couldn't do before. Like, for example, have you ever been browsing YouTube and seen a video you'd like to watch, but you can't because its copyright laws are blocked it in your country? Well, ExpressVPN gives you the ability to make it look like you're in a different country, so all you have to do is just change what country you're from, and magically, those videos appear. And it works on Netflix, too. Like, did you know that people in the UK get Rick and Morty on Netflix? Well, with ExpressVPN, you can, too. All you have to do is connect to a server in the United Kingdom, refresh the page, And boom, there it is. Anyway, if any of that's got you curious, you can get three months for free when you sign up at ExpressVPN slash Joe Scott. I'll put the link down below, but seriously, if you've been wanting to try out a a VPN service, this is a good time to do it. You know, there's enough to worry about these days. So yeah, ExpressVPN slash Joe Scott, you get three months free, links down in the description. Big thanks to ExpressVPN for supporting this video and a huge shout out to the Answer Files on Patreon and the members who are joining uh, here on YouTube, the YouTube members that are uh, helping to support this community helping me grow a team, just being awesome people. Plus you get little badges by your name. Here's some people I need to shout out real quick. We've got the FP, FPS channel, the FPS channel, <laughs> Mark Vasile, Brian S, Shoshana Bain, Abbott Monty Pitts OSB, Prasoon Gupta, Kaylee Lopez, Guto Bernardo, uh, Lungo Vertra, Oak Lee, A Cone, Gary Tooley, me, Christoph Puchala, W. Little, and Raleo cameron or Raleo Cameron. Anyway, uh, thank you guys so much. If you would like to join them, get early access to videos, exclusive live streams, and like I said, you get a little badge by your name, you get to be special. You can just click the little join button down below. Thank you. T-shirts available at the store at answerswithjoe.com slash shirts. I know I'll wear the same shirts over and over again because I'm too lazy to go get more, but there's plenty more on there, and there's fun designs, and and they look good on you. They look good on you, so look good. Get a shirt. It supports the channel. Thank you. (laughs) All right. Please do like and share this video if you liked it. And if this is your first time here, maybe check out this video because YouTube thinks you'll like that one or any of the others down here that have my face on them. And if you like them and you want to see more, I do come back with videos every Monday. So I invite you to subscribe. All right. That's it for now. You guys go out there. Have an eye-opening rest of the week and I'll see you next Monday. Love you guys. Take care.